0: This morning, we're back in Luke, as you see, as we took last week off to kind of consider Habakkuk chapter 3. It has been said, recently, I should say, I have read a person write this statement that I think is helpful for our time this morning in the text. So, I begin with this individual's comment, quote, hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Whereas heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. In other words, to expand upon the individual's comment, only those who recognize their spiritual poverty can ever come to understand what true righteousness really means. This is what we discussed earlier in the shorter catechism, considering what is repentance. It is that sense, that sinner's sense, and true grief and hatred for his own sin and misery. Again, only those who recognize their spiritual poverty can ever come to understand what true righteousness really means. You see, Without a true sense of one's own sin and misery. Not the sin and misery of their neighbor. But their own sin and misery. Will he then ever truly grieve over it? Will he ever truly despise it in such a manner that he will turn from it and turn to God for the mercy offered to him in Christ. The central point of our text this morning is about this free offer of the gospel. The central point of our narrative that we just had read for us is simply this. Contrary to Simon's belief, none is righteous, no not one, Romans 3. That's the central piece of our text this morning I want to consider for the next few moments. Once again, none is righteous, no, not one. Turning to the text then, consider with me what I am labeling here this morning at the beginning in verse 36 I'm calling it the Feast of Revelation. It's kind of this moment where a context is created wherein one has things revealed to them that maybe they're not what they thought they were. They're not in the place or position or authority that they thought they had in the discussion. So I'm calling this context for 35 through 50, a feast of revelation. Look at what I mean in verse 36 and 37. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Of course, this is our Lord. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, in order to step back and grasp the context of what's really going on here, how did all of this in the text really take place? Let me give you what is a clearer picture, perhaps, of what is exactly taking place in a historical meeting, such as a meal, where you go into someone's house or place and you have this meal. In order to explain how the woman exactly got access, consider three things about the historical setting of such a meal. These meals are typical in the sense that they are public, semi-public affairs. It isn't kind of sequestered into your dining room, as maybe you're thinking at this point in time. If they're in Simon's dining room, how did the woman get in there? What what exactly took place? How did she get access? Rather, step back out of our kind of consideration of this meal and consider historically, these are semi-public affairs. They're often, if it's in Simon's house, it would be often considered in an open courtyard belonging to Simon. So again, it, it wouldn't be sequestered into your dining room. It would have been more open. It would have been in a courtyard area, largely under the ownership of Simon. Two, consider the purpose for the occasion. Why would Simon invite Jesus over in the first place? Well, clearly it is for a deeper and expanded dialogue or instruction. So you're inviting, you host someone to come over that you perceive as an authority figure or someone you would like to hear more from or have a deeper dialogue about something you are familiar, and in your open courtyard, you occasion a meal to continue the dialogue and grasp further instruction. This leads to the third piece. Onlookers would gather just off the table setting in order to listen in on the dialogue. You can think of it kind of in terms, at least I was thinking of it as kind of in college. In In the college atmosphere, maybe you'll have a professor at some point in time be kind of addressed uh, by a student and they begin a dialogue and before you know it, they're sitting at a table maybe in a common space area and people, maybe the mail room's not far from there, maybe I'm just giving you my college perspective and then someone notices there's a dialogue taking place and before you know it, people are interested because maybe they're hearing voices raised or maybe they're seeing something of passion take place and they start to gather around that table setting where these individuals are kind of having a rather pointed dialogue something is taking place that's significant and more and more onlookers hear and then see and they begin to gather around the center between this further instruction and dialogue. This is kind of a picture in your mind of what's taking place with Simon and this meal. This is how the woman in the story gets access to Jesus. She knows that the Lord is over there. She realizes this. And then with the alabaster oil, then moves toward the crowd. That is the semi-public affair where the Lord is speaking with Simon. Now, as we progress through the narrative story, again, keep in mind Simon as the central figure. We're quick to move on to the woman. Great, and it's an exciting story of redemption. And she is in a central point, but Simon... Is the one the Lord is zeroing in on. So, as we move to what the woman begins to do in this very public affair, keep your mind's eye on Simon. As that clearly is what our Lord does. The text is going to show a light or shine a light upon just how blinding our sin of self righteousness is. That's the spotlight. Just how blinding our sin of self-righteousness and moral superiority really is. Look at verse 37. Again, they're in this semi-public affair, in this dialogue. And notice now we look at the woman's actions, but don't forget about Simon. Verse 37, and behold... And this is kind of in the text and kind of like, and you won't believe what happened. A woman of the city who was a sinner when she came in, when she learned that he was reclining, that is the Lord was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, carefully note that being a woman of the city, like you're not going to believe what happened. A woman of the city came in is not shorthand, I'm sure you know as an astute reader, is not shorthand for where she's from. That isn't that, you know, she lives in that city. Rather, it is expounded upon in the next phrase in case we were confused. What do you mean by a woman of the city? Notice, as has been read for you, very next phrase helps interpret the idea of, of the city, not living in the city, but, uh, you know, of the city. She was, you know, a sinner, This clearly says one plus one equals two in the description, as Luke carefully writes out what took place, indeed, the woman is a prostitute. Now, the scene is rather, at this point in time, quite uncomfortable. You can imagine if we could even put something together in our own mind, just appreciate the awkwardness of the situation. A table is gathered, and as you know, as the table setting, a semi-public affair where people are gathering around. What's going on in there? Who is that over there speaking? Do you know what's going on in that, in that group? Oh, well it's, well, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's speaking over there. Oh, and he's over at Simon's, and everyone's gathering and wondering, and everyone's peering in, and dialogue is taking place, of which we just don't have access to. What is exactly taking place in this situation? Then they're sitting at a table, and typically when you're sitting at table, you're not, again, in a dining room with chairs. You, you, you're kind of kneeling. So typically your feet would most likely be behind you. Now, at this point in time here, they are gathered, seated down, and then a woman pushes through the crowd. You know, a prostitute woman, look care of the city, you know, a sinner. And here she pushes into the crowd and she begins sobbing and anointing the Lord's feet behind him. Here he sits, right, and, and, and his feet exposed. And she is anointing the feet, and she is sobbing over him. Her, her tears falling as clearly, as, as Luke articulates there, behind him at his feet. She was standing behind him. That is, his feet were exposed, and she is there. The woman of the city is right here. And she began to wet his feet, weeping. And she began wiping them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment right there in front of everyone. Jesus' feet, you have to appreciate. Notice also our Lord doesn't immediately stand up. Doesn't even reposition his feet. Creating more intensity for Simon to deal with. That's exactly where the spotlight goes. Here our Lord is having his feet washed by a prostitute who is sobbing at a table. Now the spotlight, here it is. We're all noticing it. You couldn't help but to see it. She's sobbing. She's right here anointing his feet. But you know what the text does? As our eyes peer right here, we just don't even know what to to make of it how to judge it, what to even? it's shocking. The text goes like this, over to Simon. Spotlight is on him. Why, why, why is it peering back over to Simon? We have this major situation erupting. Our Lord sitting patiently, allowing this woman, pouring her tears upon him. And yet the scene peers to Simon, why? Because remember, as we started, consider if there's truth here. Hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Simon's moral superiority and self-righteousness is what's being confronted. Here each of us can join the narrative. Different levels in different manners, based on different constitutions and different personalities, nonetheless, all find ourselves sitting in Simon's seat. Notice as we peer over to Simon, remember the disruption that is taking place with this woman and our Lord, and yet the text peering over to Simon. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him, saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Don't you find it interesting in 39 that Simon says it to himself. An interesting note there in the text. Isn't that how we all treat our own sense of moral superiority or self righteousness? It's not like we want people to think us morally superior or superior and righteous, self righteous. So we would never say it out loud because then we'd be exposed. But our heart reveals it as we say it quietly and silently to ourselves. But that's not going to work clearly with the Lord at the table, for He doesn't simply judge by externals. As we learn with David, even back in 1 Samuel, the Lord knows the heart. He doesn't judge by simple appearance. And this is what catches Simon in trouble. Simon is now second-guessing the entire situation of the meal. Why did I even have this guy over? Why did I even create this context? Remember, he wanted to speak with Jesus because he was interested in his prophetic ministry. He was interested in his authority. He was interested in what he had heard and what he had observed about Jesus of Nazareth. At this point, feeling like a scholar himself was interested in interacting and, you know, sanitized discussion. You know, true, upstanding dialogue and discussion. He was interested in him as a prophet. Clearly, however, he is no prophet. This is what Simon is thinking. Remember, the woman is sobbing, anointing our Lord with oil and crying over his feet. The only thing that moves Simon about it is, I wish I wouldn't have had this meal with him. Because he clearly is no prophet. Prophets would reveal things that we just are yet to know. They would be astute instructors and teachers of the law. I mean, think about it. He doesn't even know what all of us know. This woman's a prostitute. And if you can't grasp that, then how would you instruct us on the law? This woman is not only a sinner, says Simon, but she is a sinner of the worst kind. Do you notice how he says that in the text? Look at his response once again in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, clearly, right, he can't be because he would have known who and here's his point of what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In other words, Simon is here offended that Jesus is allowing this woman to touch him. His moral rectitude, sense of self-righteousness is herein offended by the love of Christ. Simon is acutely aware of the prostitute's spiritual and moral poverty. Remember, as we began, only those who recognize their spiritual poverty can ever come to understand what true righteousness really means. But for Simon he is acutely aware of the prostitute's spiritual and moral poverty. Think about that just for a moment. How often do you, do I, how often do we as the church and public testimony, how often do we mirror Simon's sense of moral outrage and self-righteousness? How often are we, not only corporately, but individually, how often are we so aware of others' faults, so keenly attuned to our neighbor's sins, able to so quickly point out someone else's shortcomings? This is what Jesus is addressing with Simon, the blinding sin of self-righteousness. This, Pastor Dan spoke on just a, a, a few weeks ago, if I could join you in chapter 6, verse 41. This is an expanded dialogue here as we see an example right here with Simon. As our Lord just spoke in verse 41 of chapter 6, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Speaking again, addressing the blindness of the sin of self-righteousness. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me, take you, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is what our Lord is addressing with Simon, the sense of moral outrage in hypocrisy. There is a beam in Simon's eye of self-righteousness, but he is able indeed to only concern himself with the prostitute. Our Lord then turns the tables on Simon very quickly, again, knowing what is in our heart, knowing what is on our mind, long before we utter it. So as we see others, as we interact with others, as we interact with one another, the private judgments that are in our mind, such as that which is in Simon's, is made very clear to the Lord. We don't need to go the extra step to verbalize it, to be guilty of it. Our Lord, knowing what Simon is thinking, turns the tables right on him with a story of two debtors. Begin in verse 40, and Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, notice how many people can pay in this scenario. So, so just briefly note, it doesn't matter if you have 500 or 50, how how many can pay in the entire debtor scenario, Um, no matter what the debt. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, and note carefully Simon's answer. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And the Lord says to him, you have judged rightly. You see, Simon here is trapped and embarrassed in the parable in two ways. Number one, as the parable parable goes forward, Simon now knows that Jesus knows he is a debtor. I guess Jesus is a prophet after all. You, you see it in the language, uh, maybe as you, as you address or explain a scenario to your kids, have you ever explained it where you said, well, how would that make you feel? If I did this, okay, so you're doing that, you're doing it because of their sense of outrage. No, he did it to me first. And you say, okay, 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 okay all right, right, right. So from your place of outrage, and this person who is guilty before you, What if I told the story like this? How would that, as we all continuously say, or our parents have said to us, how would that make you feel? And after you paint this really terrible graphic photo of your child and how terrible they are, they say, not very good. All right, we're on to something. Okay, great. See, in that little moment of revelation, like, I guess it's reasonable, how they acted maybe I'm not guiltless in the matter right but it's not like you're right I'm totally with you it's more of a not very good okay all right stay with that feeling and let's move over can we do something about it then here's Simon caught in the same scenario Simon I have something that I can't believe you're letting this take place you're obviously no prophet okay let me give you a scenario in your, in your moral superiority, let me address it just for a moment. Let's see if this makes sense to you. There's two debtors, actually. And, and what if I did this? What is that? And he says, uh-oh, I'm caught in here. I see he, he's a, I'm a debtor. So he says, I suppose the one that is forgiven more. The second piece that catches Simon in humiliation and embarrassment in the brilliant parable is that he has to admit, by both accounts, that Jesus indeed is a prophet of the Lord. How so? Again, the indictment against Jesus earlier by Simon was he obviously is disqualified from being a prophet because he doesn't know what sort of woman this is. If he did, he wouldn't allow her to be here. Here, our Lord, in expressing the two debtors, of which he identifies himself as one, there's another debtor here, one who owes 500 denarii. Oh, two debtors. So you do know what sort of woman this is notice simon doesn't think necessarily that he has no debt And how often that is with evangelism, how often it is with ourselves as well, even believers, as we justify moral outrage, as we look at others down upon them, as we pass judgments from a moral superiority standpoint. It's not that Simon thinks he has no debt, it's just that his debt isn't that much. Simon Grass, I'm not perfect, I'm not sinless, I've done wrong before, but comparatively speaking, I'm not as bad as that sort of person. This is the blinding nature of the sin of self-righteousness we can enter into court with one another. And by comparative analysis, find ourselves succeeding. This is what Simon does with himself. Is if we were to put her and I next to each other, I would prevail by comparative analysis. Watch our Lord dismantle His comparative analysis. And also, we could fill in there ourselves in the narrative that truly before the Lord, we don't have a comparative analysis to stand on. So Simon says, you know, what she's done. Okay, fine, you are prop- You get it. She owes 500 denarii, right? Okay, let's do some comparative analysis right here and right now. Look at our Lord as he then proceeds through the comparative analysis approach that Simon has encouraged. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, just to be clear, do you see this woman? <laughs> right? Do so, so you think... Oh, I do. I I, I see what's going on. Okay, let's start there with you then, Simon. Um, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Let's keep going. You gave me no kiss. No warm greeting, no welcome. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Let's go a little further. You you did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet. My feet. With ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then the text peers to the woman. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, it is this our Lord through entering into comparative analysis with Simon, simply says to Simon, Simon, only those who recognize their spiritual poverty, not the poverty of their neighbor, only those who recognize their own spiritual poverty can ever come to understand what true righteousness really means. Simon's sins were perhaps, yes, less obvious in a comparative approach. As he makes a comparative plea between him and a prostitute, yes, yours are more socially acceptable. What you do, sure, Simon, yes. Indeed, in a comparison of raw acts in time, your sins seem to be much less obvious. But comparative righteousness between you and your neighbor is not righteousness before God. This is what each of us must grasp from this text. So reflexively, we enter into court with one another and we always prevail. In the court of man. Through comparative righteousness, we find ourselves morally secure. But as our Lord points out here, comparative righteousness is no righteousness before God. And righteousness before God is the only righteousness that truly matters. So Paul says in Romans 3. No one is righteous. No, not a single one of us. In the end analysis, what we have here is two debtors, but only one recognized their debts. and did indeed through the action of the text clearly repent of her sin unto life and was therein forgiven her sin. This is the same response that each and every one of us must have before the Lord, an acknowledgement of our debt before him not our moral superiority against our neighbor. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Pray that you would strengthen us unto the saving grace of repentance. Lord, that you would enable us to be enlightened in our minds of the knowledge of what Christ herein speaks. And with true hatred, And grief for our sin as we saw in the woman in this text. That we would, after true hatred and grief for our actions, not our neighbors, be set free from the blinding sin of self-righteousness. We would turn from our sense of self-righteousness. And unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after a life of new obedience. Lord, be gracious to us. Correct our wrong approach. Let us humble ourselves and receive all that you provide. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you remain with your heads bowed and eyes closed there for a moment, encourage you to meditate, ponder.